O Lord our God, we come before you now, thanking you for your word, thanking you for your grace. And we ask that you would teach us of your word, that you would give us attentive ears, open minds, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, and grant us understanding into your truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is truth itself. Amen. As we continue to study 1 Peter, we'll discover increasingly difficult things to understand. Peter is going to have for us in the next few weeks some very, very unusual things to discuss, and we'll find increasingly difficult things to do. Peter just doesn't want us to know things. He wants us to actually put our faith into action. Now today, as we move on in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, what we're going to do is we're going to discover the basis for all obedient behavior. The basis for any Christian obedience. We'll discover the basis for our persevering patience. And we'll discover the basis for changing our lives, the lives of our children, and the life of our church, and ultimately, uh, even the life of the world. We'll discover the glory of Jesus' passion. The passion of Jesus Christ. His brutal suffering. His suffering on behalf of us. His suffering on behalf of those who deserve to suffer. That is the basis for all Christian thinking, all Christian action, and all Christian speaking. Today, basically what we're going to learn is that we must follow the example of Jesus. We must follow the example of Jesus and live for righteousness. We must live for righteousness. So what I'd like to do is just take this verse by verse. Verse 21 reads like this. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. This passage begins by telling us that we're called to something, but it doesn't tell us what we are called to. We have to go back a verse or two to figure out the nature of this calling. We know this because it just starts out with, for to this you were called. And that's what it indicates. Now, if you go back a verse, and we talked about this the last two weeks, the immediate context of this whole passage is that Christians are called to suffer for doing good. As I read, if a servant was beaten for his faults and he took it patiently, the Lord says, well, that's no great shakes, really. But if you're beaten for doing wrong, if you're beaten unjustly and you bear that patiently, well, then you'll be commended by God. That will earn God's commendation. So that is what we are called to. We are called to suffer for doing good. That is what we were called to. And obviously, God is the one who is in charge of doing the calling. To suffer patiently for doing good is an extremely difficult thing to do. First and foremost, you have to be doing what is good. That's hard enough in itself, just actually obeying God. Then you have to be in a particular circumstance where somebody doesn't like that obedience and they have some type of power over you or they have some type of influence amongst those who are around you. And then they have to exert that pressure and that influence, and you have to be able to bear under it patiently. If we do that, we will be commended by God. Now, God is the one who's doing the calling in this passage. And when God calls, we only have two options. We either answer the call, or we just let it ring. If you're eating dinner and the phone rings and you get up 
and you look at the caller ID, and you notice that it's an 800 number. You figure out that it's a telemarketer. Most of us simply ignore the call. We ignore it. But God isn't a telemarketer. If we want to live for righteousness sake, if we want to live for his kingdom, if we want to live as followers of Jesus, if we want to follow in his footsteps, then when God calls, the only choice we really have is to answer it. Now, the answering of this call is that we're saying to God, yes, Lord, I am willing to suffer patiently for doing good. I have to say that this is almost the epitome of Christian maturity. When you're willing to suffer for doing good, even in this case, or the case of our brothers and sisters throughout the globe, of possibly being martyred, if you go the distance that far, there's not much more in maturity that you can hope to accomplish. If you're put to death for the cause of Christ, then that's as high as you can go in terms of faithfulness. That's as high as you can go. And hopefully none of us will ever be called to that particular task. But this is a great task to be called to. And the basis for God calling us is that the basis is that Christ suffered for us. You see, God does things very differently than the world. He does things very differently than we would think. Suffering is, generally speaking, in our minds and in the, in the eyes of the world, to be a decidedly unpleasant thing. And it is unpleasant. And it's something to be avoided at all costs. The catch is, is that the greatest man who ever lived, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, not only didn't um, ignore suffering, he didn't seek to avoid it, he actively, willingly, of his own volition, underwent it for us. We hear that message a lot. And if we hear that message a lot, Christ died for your sins, Christ suffered for your sins, Sometimes we can begin to take it for granted over the years. This type of passage is something that has to hit us afresh every day. Because if Christ didn't suffer, if Christ didn't willingly suffer for us, each one of us would be lost. If Christ didn't willingly suffer for us, each one of us would be condemned to live forever and ever in eternity away from the comfortable presence of God. His suffering and his death is what brings us into communion with God. And then it tells us that he has left us an example and that we should follow his steps. What an honor it is that our Father would call us to follow Jesus' steps. Have you ever seen a a young boy stumbling around in his father's shoes or his older brother's work boots? It's kind of endearing, especially especially if they're one and they're just starting to learn how to walk, and they put on the big clod hoppers and they walk around. It's endearing. Well, that's what, in a way, that's what God is telling us to do. He's telling us to put on Jesus' shoes and to follow exactly where he went. <clears throat> now, most of us, many of us, like that poem, that popular poem, Footprints, that tells us that in our most dire circumstances, that Jesus picks us up and he carries us as his load. Correct? You've, you've seen that. That's very nice, and it's very true. This passage is telling us exactly the opposite. When we read footprints, we are, our hearts are warmed. We think, that's beautiful. It was really tough. I don't know how I got through it. And now I know that the only way I got through it is that Jesus picked me up and walked me through the front lines. 
This one is saying, "Uh uh-uh. This one is saying, you walk into the fire. The exact opposite of footprints. We are to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And if you know anything about the Gospels, Jesus walked right into the den of his enemies. He walked right into it. And that is what we are called to do as well. And it is a great honor. We have to believe that it is a great honor. And we have to believe that it is a great honor that God will give us the strength in order to fulfill that task. Can you think of anybody that you would rather have your children emulate than the Lord Christ? We hold up examples to our children. It's natural. If a, ch- if a child wants to uh, excel in a particular uh, sport or a particular musical instrument, we might, and it's perfectly reasonable, hold up someone who's very good at that particular instrument and say, look, that's what you want to strive for. You might not get there, but you strive for it. You want to be a baseball player. That's good. You know, let's, let's watch some baseball together and see how the pros do it. Um, Jesus is a pro. He wrote the book on suffering for doing good. Because even when we suffer for doing good, we know that we are sinners saved by grace. When Jesus suffered for doing good, he was completely and utterly innocent. Completely and utterly innocent. Now as the text moves on, verse 22 is an allusion to Isaiah 53. And here God reminds us of the sinlessness of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. The text tells us that he is the one who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. This is an absolutely objective statement. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, they couldn't find any credible witnesses or evidence against Jesus. They failed in that regard. They had three years of his public ministry. Three years to marshal the evidence to convict him. They failed. They had three years to build up their case, and they failed. And even, we read it last week, even when they grabbed him and they dragged him to that show trial before the Sanhedrin, even then they failed. They had to drum up false witnesses, you recollect. And the false witnesses, their testimony didn't jive. And under Jewish law, testimony has got to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. They couldn't get it to jive. They failed. They failed. So then why was Jesus sentenced to death if they failed? Jesus was sentenced to death for telling the truth. Jesus was sentenced to death because he told the truth, not because he lied under oath. He didn't answer any of the priest's questions. When the high priest places him under oath, he answers him, Honestly, yes, yes, I am the son of the blessed one. I am the Messiah. And by the way, in the very near future, you will see the son of man coming with great power in the clouds. That's it. He was convicted of his own words and his words were absolutely true. Now, what's interesting is that even though he's sentenced to death for telling the truth, he didn't fess up to a crime. If you're in court and you're on trial and you plead guilty and you confess to the crime, well, you're sentenced because of your confession, what you say. Jesus is sentenced to death for his confession as well, but he didn't, he didn't do any crime. It's not a crime to say that you're the Messiah. It's not. If you can be 
shown to be a false prophet under Old Testament law. You had to be stoned to death, but they were unable to disclose that Jesus was a false prophet. They failed in trying to find anything against him. You see, he willingly, he willingly, of his own volition, went into that lion's den's force. And I want you to think for a moment about this verse and think of the difficulty of Christ's accomplishment. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. How hard is it for us to control our words for one day or one hour? See, we read these verses and we just, oh wow, he committed no sin, I know that. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. What this text is asserting is that for 33 plus years, his entire life, Jesus never once uttered a single misspoken sinful word. Not once. That's a tremendous accomplishment. How many times do you think in his ministry, or even as a boy, do you think he had been tempted to rail against somebody? And when he saw all the evil around him, and he never once gave in to that temptation. Not once. That's the God whom you serve. That is who your Savior is. When we go to Jesus and we want forgiveness, when we go to Jesus and we want strength against temptation, that's who we're speaking to. The one who has no deceit at all in his mouth. We have a great Savior. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And I certainly hope that you have trusted him with your soul. If you haven't, if you haven't, then I call upon you to believe because this person is your only <clears throat> hope of salvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is your only hope. It's your only hope. Verse 23 continues to talk about, to extol the virtues of Jesus Christ. The verse tells us that he is the one who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. This passage is telling us that Jesus literally turned the other cheek. Now, Jesus taught us about turning the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5. And most of us give at least tacit agreement to turning the other cheek. But usually when we talk about turning the other cheek, we're using it as a figure of speech. We're talking metaphorically. We, most of the time, we don't really mean it. And we usually comes up something like this. Well, son, you know that you need to turn the other cheek when they make fun of you. I know that they excluded you. I know that they hurt you, but you need to turn the other cheek. It's a figure of speech. Um, for Jesus, this is no figure of speech. For Jesus, this is no metaphor. He lived it. He literally turned the other cheek. They mocked him, they spat on him, they slapped him, they beat him, they put a crown of thorns on him and beat that into his head with a, a batch of reeds, and he, what? He didn't revile in return. When he suffered, when he was threatened, he didn't suffer. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. Again, how unlike Christ was compared to us. We are very willing, very quickly, to not turn the other cheek. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's one of the most difficult things to do when you know that you're right 
when you know that you're being accused unjustly and you take it patiently and turn the other cheek. That is extremely difficult. And you parents know how difficult it is to even teach your children that. Because your initial instinct is, okay, you better get in there. You better get in there and you better show them who you are. Don't let them push you around. It's our natural inclination. This is no metaphor, Jesus. He lived it. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus simply told it like it was. They had no right, they had no legal grounds to abuse him in the way they did. They had no grounds, no legal grounds to arrest him, much less find him guilty, much less sentence him to death, much less abuse him before they took him to Pilate. And Pilate certainly had the legal right as a Roman prefect to torture him, but he didn't have the right given from God. He's an innocent man. There's something about an innocent man getting harmed that makes us revolt against the system of justice. The passage then tells us how Jesus was able to do that. We often wonder, how on earth could he have done that? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. Instead of trusting in his own power, which he had, instead of seeking vengeance, Jesus committed himself to the Father. Jesus was confident. He was confident in his own record. In order to commit himself to him who judges righteously, What that really is saying is that Jesus had confidence in his own record. He was willing to stand before the Father on his own terms. So what the Sanhedrin found him guilty of really didn't matter. What Pilate said to him really didn't matter. Because the Eternal Father, the Christ, was willing and confident to stand right before him and be judged on his own record. He was sinless. No deceit was found in his mouth. He's perfect, holy, just. Now let me ask you this, a rhetorical question. If you were asked to stand before the Father on the basis of your own record, would you be confident in that record? No chance. None of us would. None of us. Would we entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously? If we have to be judged on what we have said, what we have thought, what we have done, what we have felt, it's over. It's been over for all of us a long time ago. Jesus has the extraordinary testimony of being the only one who is able to say, break out the, break out the law book. Show me where I violated this law. Show me. He didn't break the law. Not once. And it's something that we understand, but it's something we really need to focus on. Because he did that in his humanity. We often hear people say, well, he's God, he couldn't sin. That's true, but in case you didn't notice, he died on a cross and God can't die. Jesus fought those temptations in his humanity. He didn't call upon his divinity. That would have been cheating in a very real way. But now we come up to a real problem. Jesus knew what he was doing. And in verse 24, we come into some very deep theology. The verse tells us that Jesus was our substitute. 
It states that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Very important. By saying that Jesus bore our sins, Peter simply means that he is our substitute. Jesus' death is the substitution for your death. Jesus' moral perfection is a substitute for your moral imperfection. Jesus' death brings you life. Jesus' substitute condemnation brings your pardon. Total switching of roles, a total substitution. He's a propitiation for our sin. He appeased God's wrath. He appeased God's wrath. And then the two phrases, in his own body and by whose stripes you were healed, they're key to understanding the passage. Because they lead us to think of the words of 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to this. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. You do want to memorize that one. What this is saying to us, when we couple this with Peter's saying that he bore his, our sins in his own body, that Jesus literally became sin on that cross. You see, God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly just. He cannot, via his own nature, condemn and execute an innocent man. So we have a problem. We have an innocent man being sentenced to death and we know that the Father executed him. So we have to ask, how on earth is that just? God always does what's in accord with his own nature and he is perfectly just. So how could he execute his innocent son? Jesus wasn't innocent on the cross. He became sin for us. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. It's as if the Father had taken Uh, some rancid, fatal disease and injected it into the bloodstream of his only begotten son. You see, when he was on that cross, he was literally guilty as sin. We say that, don't we? He's as guilty as sin. Jesus was as guilty as sin, not because of his record, but because of our record. Our sin, our disease was injected into him in some way that we don't understand. The Father transformed him into sin itself on that cross. And when that occurred, then the Father not only had the right, but he was impelled by his own nature to unleash his wrath. In his own body, he bore our sins. You see, this really does put a different spin on Christmas. That baby was born innocent and he grew into an innocent man. And that innocent man was then unjustly condemned to death. And then that body, that body that was in that little manger, became sin. Became a hideous, ugly, filthy thing in the sight of God. And God destroyed him for us. That's what the passion of Jesus Christ is about. People miss that. Yes, he was innocent, but everything of ours was given to him. When, when some horrible atrocity happens, some madman does something, what do you hear? What's the first thing out of your mouth? How could he do that? What was going through his mind? Can you imagine being in the mind of some heinous criminal, some awful criminal, even for a minute? It just gives you the heebie-jeebies. You want to shudder. Well, here's what I want you to think about. Every 
ugly action, every sinful word, every ugly sinful intention of every Christian throughout history was injected somehow into Christ's body. He doesn't have to worry about what was going on in his mind. He was right there. We can't imagine the terror of that experience because he was perfectly holy, perfectly sinless. And all of that was given into his body. The torture and the terror of becoming sin. Most of us know that we're capable of doing an awful lot of damage if we were left to our own good. Jesus understood the depth of humanity's sickness when he was on that cross because he literally became that sickness. It wasn't just that he bore that sickness, he became that sickness. That should crush our hearts when we realize what he did for us. It should cause us jubilation when we realize the end of the chapter. Verse 25 says, We were like sheep going astray, but we've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Yeah, we are sheep going astray because of all that sin. But he loved us so much that he reclaimed us by becoming sin. He loved us so much that he was willing to undergo that terror. Do you know what it's like to be really scared? Really terrified? Most of us have had some kind of experience in it. Most of us are really scared about one or two things. I personally find it, and most of us do find it, absolutely terrifying um, when the car goes out of control and you're, you're in the car, either through ice or rain or anything. It's, it's a lousy experience. You're, you're, you get tense. You break out in a sweat. You grab the wheel. You wind up making a mistake. The terror and horror that Jesus felt on the cross cannot even... We, we have nothing to compare it to. And he did that so that he could bring the sheep back into the fold. Now, all this tells us to do now. Verse 24 tells us that we have died to sins. We have died to sins because he became sin and died. Do you understand that you have died to sins? That sin is no longer your master. Romans 6 tells us that we have died to sin. That means when sin comes knocking, we don't have to listen to it. And that's what this text is encouraging us to do. To realize that Christ's death, his passion, is the basis for us dying to sin and living for righteousness. The question is, do we want to live for righteousness? When we think of what Jesus has done for us, can we do anything less? Can we do anything less? We could never repay him. The least we can do is to follow in his footsteps and follow his example and be willing to die to ourselves and live for righteousness' sake. Will we do it? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our God, we beg you for the strength to believe that we are dead to sin. We beg you for the strength to live for righteousness. In Christ's name, Amen.